Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also visit my website, CanadaEHX.ca, and put in a donation through PayPal. His name is well known in Canada, especially in southern Alberta, and his impact on the history of Canada is immense. He is Chief Crowfoot, and today I am looking at his life and the legacy he left after his death. Crowfoot was born in 1830 in Rupert's Land to the Canae people, called the Bloods by Traders, who were members of the Blackfoot Confederacy. His father was Pax a Knife, and his mother was attacked towards home, and he was born with the name Short Close. When he was five years old, his father was killed during a raid on their camp by the Crow tribe. Following the death of his father, his mother remarried to a member of the Siksika tribe called Many Names. Shot Close was adopted into the tribe, and his name would become Bear Ghost. It is with this tribe he would become known for his abilities as not only a warrior, but also a leader. By the age of ten, Crowfoot was so skilled with horses he was in charge of his stepfather's horses. One story tells how he advanced and hit a painted teepee in a hostile Crow camp, which would give him the name Crow Indians Bigfoot which would be shortened in time by interpreters and traders to Crowfoot. Crowfoot would first go to battle at the age of 13, and by the time he was 20, he had been in 19 battles and was wounded six times. At one point, it is said that in full view of his camp, he killed a grizzly bear himself with a spear. When he reached manhood, Crowfoot began to leave behind the warrior path and seldom went to war. As he became leader of his people, he would focus on raising horses and leading his people. In 1865, he'd become a minor chief in the Blackfoot Nation, leading 21 lodges. That same year, he would meet Father Albert Lacombe, a huge figure in Alberta's history, and he would form a lifelong friendship with the man. He respected Lacombe enough that he allowed him to preach Christianity to his people, although Crowfoot never did convert. His bravery and determination would gain him the respect from other Blackfoot, but it was not just that. He was also known as a voice of peace and reason, and was one of the most respected Indigenous leaders as he rose to become a prominent figure of the Blackfoot. Due to his leadership qualities and his caring nature regarding his tribe, he was often called Manistokos, which means father of the people. As a leader, he was seeing more Europeans and Eastern Canadians coming into the territories the Indigenous had occupied for centuries. Crowfoot would work to build relationships with the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Mounted Police, which sometimes his own tribe did not agree with. For Crowfoot, he saw the Europeans and Canadians as just other people. Some were good, some were bad, but just people. Father Lacombe would relate an instance when he saw the power of Crowfoot and his abilities in war, Lacombe was visiting Blackfoot Chief Old Son in 1866 when the camp was attacked by a war party of Assiniboines and Cree. He says, In an instant, some score of bullets came crashing through the leather lodge, and the wild war whoop of the Crees broke forth through the sharp, rapid detonation of many muskets. The groans of the dying, the yelling of the warriors, the noise of dogs and horses all mingled to form a kind of hell. 
At the most critical moment, when the little camp was half taken by the Crees and when scalping and butchering was going on, the voice of Crowfoot was heard. He was rushing to the rescue. In 1869, a smallpox epidemic would hit the Blackfoot, and several of the leaders would perish. Crowfoot survived and would become one of the three head chiefs of the Blackfoot. This was also a time of change in the prairies, with the Hudson's Bay Company selling its western territory to the Dominion of Canada, itself only two years old. This would result in American traders coming into the prairies, and they began to trade liquor for fur, something that was not allowed when the area was controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company. With the arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police in 1874, Chief Crowfoot saw this as a good thing, since the illegal alcohol trade in what would one day be southern Alberta had devastated many indigenous tribes, and Crowfoot saw their presence as a solution to that. Some sources relate that he would say to Reverend John McDougall regarding the arrival of the NWMP, If left to ourselves, we are gone. The whiskey brought among us by the traders is fast killing us off and we are powerless before the evil. Our horses, buffalo robes, and other articles of trade go for whiskey. A large number of our people have killed one another and perished in various ways under the influence, and now we hear of our great mother sending her soldiers into our war. For our good, we are glad. In September of 1874, he would meet James McLeod, the assistant commissioner who would eventually become commissioner of the NWMP. The two became friends, and McLeod insisted that the rights of the Blackfoot be respected, while Crowfoot encouraged his people to have friendly relations with the NWMP. In 1876, it is related that the Sioux sent a messenger to gain the help of the Blackfoot in their fight against the Americans. Crowfoot rejected the offer, seeing that they were not strong enough to stand up against the American military and the Canadian government. But when the Sioux fled into Canada, he saw that they were refugees, and he would meet with Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull was so impressed upon meeting Crowfoot that he would name his own son Crowfoot. Crowfoot would have several wives through his life, and four of his children lived to adulthood. One son was showing skill as a warrior, but he died in a battle against the Cree. Crowfoot then led a raid into a Cree camp to kill one Cree tribe member in retaliation. In that raid, the Blackfoot would capture a Cree man who looked like the dead son of Crowfoot. That man would be adopted by Crowfoot and would take the name, eventually, of Chief Poundmaker. I talked about Chief Poundmaker several months ago. He's a really interesting person, so I encourage you to check that episode out on the podcast feed or on my website. Crowfoot had good relations with fur traders and had achieved peace with the Cree, while also saving Father Lacombe who had been caught in a crossfire of a battle. The Canadian government and the Northwest Mounted Police saw Crowfoot as the leader of all of the Blackfoot people, which was not the case. Nonetheless, Crowfoot would always speak with the other chiefs before speaking with the NWMP or government about anything. As a chief, Crowfoot would be heavily involved in the signing of Treaty 7 with the Canadian government. The Canadian government was looking to gain control of Indigenous lands without antagonizing the large groups of Indigenous there. This would bring them to make the numbered treaties with the Indigenous. Under Treaty 7, Commissioner David Laird promised flour, tea, salt, sugar, and beef during negotiations. Crowfoot refused these rations until all of the terms of the treaty were presented to him. The terms would give the indigenous of the region a plot of land, farm implements, cattle, potatoes, $5 per year, and ammunition, while the indigenous would allow settlers on their land. Crowfoot did not want to give up land, only to see the settlers push the Métis out and wipe out the bison. 
Among the Indigenous chiefs involved, one wanted to accept, but others were against it, while others were not sure which way to go. Crowfoot would meet with Red Crow of the Kane Nation, who said he would sign if Crowfoot would sign. Crowfoot would sign, and he did, at Blackfoot Crossing at the present-day Siksika Reserve, with the treaty going into effect in 1877. It is said that Crowfoot spoke to the other chiefs, saying the following about the treaty. The advice given me and my people has proved to be very good. If the police had not come to the country, where would we be now? Bad men and whiskey were killing us fast, that very few indeed would have been left today. The police have protected us as the feathers of the bird protected from the frosts of winter. I wish them all good, and trust that all our hearts will increase in goodness from this time forward. I am satisfied, and I will sign the treaty. As could be expected, the government soon began to go back on what it had agreed upon. Government employees with the IG Baker Company, which was in charge of providing food to the Blackfoot, began to reduce rations, leading to starvation. Crowfoot would lead delegations to the farm instructor to get better rations, which were barely enough even when not reduced. His pleas were ignored. In 1879, Crowfoot and his people would move south into Montana following the disappearing bison, and they were faced not only with threats from the Americans, but the Lakota as well. In 1888, they returned to their reserve near Blackfoot Crossing, and by this point, Crowfoot was disillusioned with the Canadian government that seemed to continually break promises. Upon arriving in Canada, he found out that the NWMP were no longer responsible for his people in the eyes of the government, and it was now the Department of Indian Affairs. The administrators of this department were callous towards their treatment of the indigenous. This would lead Crowfoot to openly defy the NWMP for the first time in 1882, when they attempted to arrest a minor chief of the Blackfoot. It was said that the chief had stolen a horse when in fact he had paid for it, and Crowfoot protected him in the camp. As the Canadian Pacific Railway was coming through what would one day be Alberta, Crowfoot would negotiate with Father Lacombe, who convinced Crowfoot to recommend to the Blackfoot Nation that it be allowed to move through, which Crowfoot did. Crowfoot would receive a lifetime pass from the CPR for his role in getting the railway through the area. When the Northwest Rebellion took place in 1885, after a Métis provisional government was set up in Saskatchewan, Crowfoot removed himself and his people from the fighting. Crowfoot and his people did not participate in the rebellion, but not because they were loyal to Canada, but because Crowfoot knew it was a losing battle. But both sides of the conflict sought support from Crowfoot and the Blackfoot nation. His warriors had such high respect for him that Crowfoot was able to keep his people from being involved in the fighting. And while Crowfoot remained out of the fighting, he did allow Cree refugees into his camp during the rebellion. The Canadian government saw his decision not to fight as loyalty to them, even if that wasn't the case, and he would be celebrated in eastern Canada for it. When the rebellion was over, Chief Poundmaker was wrongfully charged and convicted of treason despite not really taking part. He would be exonerated in 2019 by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Crowfoot asked for Powmaker to have a pardon, but Lieutenant Governor Edgar Dudney refused, and Powmaker was sentenced to three years in prison, but only served six months. Powmaker then returned to Crowfoot and died shortly after he arrived at the camp because of the impact on the prison stay on his health. It was because of Crowfoot that the government did not cut the hair of Powmaker in prison. In 1886, Sir John A. Macdonald invited Crowfoot to come to Ottawa, which Crowfoot did, 
telling the government that his people were starving as the bison had disappeared. The Canadian government did not listen, but while out east he did tour Montreal and Quebec with his friend, Father Lacombe. For the last decade of his life, Crowfoot was often ill and had lost many of his children. Chief Crowfoot would die on April 25, 1890, at Blackfoot Crossing from tuberculosis. His funeral was attended by government dignitaries and over 800 members of his tribe. The Calgary Herald would write the following in their obituary of Chief Crowfoot after his death was announced. This obituary uses terms we no longer use to describe the indigenous, but I'm reading it as it appeared. Crowfoot, Chief of the Blackfoot, the most important and ablest of all Indian chiefs, died at his home on Friday, April 25, 1890. He died sitting propped up with pillows and blankets, dressed in his finest toggery, with beaded tunic, buffalo skin breeches, and all his grandest clothing, the crow's head of his chieftainship resting on his head, a plume in his right hand and a pipe in his mouth. Three of his wives squatted near him, and around him were a dozen of the greatest medicine men of the tribe, and some other thirty leading Indians. Crowfoot requested that his own war song, composed by himself after his first great battle, be sung continuously. He also wore his government hat with gold band and gold rose. It goes on. For five days and five nights the tom-toms were beating loud enough to be heard six or seven miles away, and the noise and excitement attending a great chief's death had been maintained all that time. At the telegraphed request of Minister Dudney, Dr. Henry George remained until the end, spending from Monday until Friday on the reserve. Crowfoot died requesting his people to be good children and remain friendly with the whites. To his brother he gave three bulls and all his cows, and all his males except one. This went to his favorite squaw, who received the Treaty Medal of 1877. John Ware, a legend in his own right, described Chief Crowfoot as a fine, lean, physical specimen, a quiet but thoughtful man, and perhaps the greatest Indian leader of his generation. Senator Fred Gershaw would say of Crowfoot in 1954, the memory of the appearance of this great man, who is one of the greatest chieftains of his race, never grew dim in the minds of those who knew him. Long after he was gone, they recall seeing him walking over the plains, crushing the wild grass with his moccasins, holding his head and shoulders erect, with his eyes on the distant hills. Following his death, he would be honored in several places. Head smashed in Buffalo Jump and the Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park commemorate him. In 2014, work began to get the items that belonged to Chief Crowfoot returned from England, where they'd been at the Royal Albert Memorial Museum for over a century. Regalia that belonged to a legendary Blackfoot chief may soon be back home here in southern Alberta. It's been sitting in a British museum for more than a century. Crowfoot was a key figure in our province's history at a very turbulent time. Now a Blackfoot curator wants to bring the chief's artifacts back. Alison Dempster has the story. That is part of the collection. Herman Yellow Old Woman is a curator on a mission. And possibly the pipe bag. He wants to bring back regalia that belonged to Chief Crowfoot in the late 1800s. For now, it remains in a museum in Exeter, England. I was just open and honest about it, and I said, well, isn't it about time Crowfoot came home? As a curator, my concern is that all audiences benefit from this collection. But repatriation, of course, is, is also a process of healing, and that is really the crux of, of why an act of repatriation is so important. 
Yellow Old Woman went to England recently to see the artifacts in person. He was part of a Blackfoot delegation invited by the museum. Even talking about it now, I, I, I still feel the goosebumps that I got. The Crowfoot collection includes a beaded deerskin jacket and leggings, a bow case and quiver, and an embroidered pouch. The Royal Albert Memorial Museum purchased all of it from an Indian agent in 1904 for 10 pounds. Crowfoot was a Blackfoot chief at a turbulent time. Bison were disappearing and his people faced a disease and starvation. In 1877, he signed Treaty 7 and was known as a peacemaker. His acknowledgement of the inevitability of his people's changing way of life was, again, something that made him deeply sad, but that he understood was almost inevitable. There are still a number of hurdles ahead for Yellow Old Woman. British government officials need to approve the repatriation, and it will likely cost tens of thousands of dollars. But he says it's important for Blackfoot students to be able to learn about Crowfoot through the regalia. Our children are starting to lose their identity, the language, and I think for these kind of artifacts to come back will give them a boost. Yellow Old Woman hopes to bring Crowfoot's regalia home next spring. Allison Dempster, CBC News, Siksika First Nation. Success would finally be achieved in 2020 when it was confirmed that the items would be coming back to Alberta and back to where Chief Crowfoot had once lived. Oh, I think it's amazing. Uh, it's a lot of some good news in uh, this, t this pandemic uh, time we're going through right now. The team from Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park, as well as the team from Exeter, uh, they've been working behind the scenes a lot of hours, a lot of time, to get this outfit back. And, and I don't know how familiar you are with repatriation, but overseas, they don't do this often. So this is groundbreaking, and it, hopefully it opens the doors for other First Nations and other Indigenous groups to be able to get belonging back and, and work in collaboration with other groups to 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 um to help repatriate these uh, sacred items. Well, you're a direct descendant of Chief Crowfoot. What does this mean to you and for your family? Uh, it's 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 big. I mean, uh, you know, like a lot of these outfits, a lot of these, a lot of things went overseas. A lot of things went in private collections and museums. And you know, we don't know about these things. We're here. We're hearing about them now. And so, you know, to be. The black the uh, sixty guys been working with Exeter, I think five years now, and so to be, uh, you know, when I came in as chief, I was one of my goals was to get that outfit back to bring Crowfoot back home, and I think once we when we bring those items back home, it allows that spirit to rest easy. So you know we're we're, we're partly bringing part of those people back home, and uh, and this is where they belong. They belong at, at, in their homeland, in their traditional territory, and so. And that's an outfit that's going to be on display at the Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park. There's already a room built specifically for it, humid, humidified, um, temperature control and all that stuff. So it would be a great place to display the area. The outfit is also is a, the teaching and, and to show people, hey, look, you know, you learn about things in history, but you can actually see it. You can actually touch it. Well, maybe not touch it, but you can actually see it and say, this is, this is real. This is living history. Uh, the Blackfoot people, and then also too from our family. You know, I can take my son and say, you know, this was your great 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 grandfather's outfit. You know, he was the head sign of one of the head sign of the Tree Seven, and so it's, it brings great pride to be able to, to uh, show those things off at the scene in person. The plaque for Crowfoot reads: 
The great warrior, orator, and peacemaker who won the title Manistokis, father of his people, was born of blood, but became a leading chief in the Blackfoot among whom he was raised. Convinced that peace best served the Blackfoot interest, he promoted intertribal amity, adopting the Cree, Poundmaker, as his son. He persuaded the Blackfoot to sign Treaty No. 7 in 1877 and held them aloof from the rebellion of 1885, pursuing a policy of wary cooperation. In the book Heritage of the High Country, Crowfoot is described as such. Always generous, sincere, and capable as an orator and peacemaker, Chief Crowfoot became the advisor and director of the Blackfoot Nation. He expected to be heard and obeyed and commanded great respect from both Indian and white. His grave is at the site where Treaty 7 was signed, and a bronze marker was placed on the grave to indicate he was the father of his people. In 1948, a stone cairn was erected in his memory. In 1968, The Ballad of Crowfoot was released by Willie Dunn, a Mi'kmaq singer and songwriter. The song is about the inhumane and unjust treatment of the indigenous by the government, and it urges the indigenous to be politically active. Dunn would turn it into a 10-minute film, the first National Film Board film directed by an indigenous person, and it is also considered to be the first Canadian music video. Here is a portion of that song. Your years have gone The years have passed Your heart is set Your soul is cast Stand before the council fire You have the mind And the desire Of notions wise You speak so well And in brave deeds do excel, and it's 1853, and you stand the chief of confederacy, you are the leader, you are the chief, you stand against both liar and thief, they trade, raise whiskey, steal your land, and they're coming in swift Like the wind-blown sand They shoot the buffalo Kill the game And send their preachers Into shame And it's 1864 And you think of peace And you think of war In 2008, Chief Crowfoot was inducted into the North America Railway Hall of Fame, and in 2009, a C-train station in Calgary was named for him. But I'm going to close this episode out with a quote that's been attributed to him, and I think it's a wonderful quote. Near his death, he is quoted as saying, What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is a little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com, or you can visit my website where you'll see hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Go to canadaehx.com. 
And if you want to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, North America Railway Hall of Fame, the Encyclopedia of the Plains, Alberta Champions, Biographic.ca, Wikipedia, Parks Canada, Windspeaker.com, DailyView.ca, Heritage of the High Country, Calgary Herald's Tales of the Old Town, John Ware's Cow Country, Louis Riel and his people, the Pioneer West, and Adventurous Albertans. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.